Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Hey, it's Kevin. It's WDEV. It's VT Viewpoint. We're going to do it again. It's Friday, and we have a packed show. So let's get right to it. I'm in the chair and at the mic. We're talking politics. We're talking birds. Yes, birds. DEV listeners are no stranger to birds, but ants and tebbets eat your heart out because we have two new bird people for you to meet. One is called the Bird Diva, and we'll get to all that in a few minutes. Then we'll head to D.C. to talk politics with Bob Nay. And there is so much to talk about, the, not the least of which is the president of China is going to meet with Vladimir Putin. Boy, what does that mean? Uh, we'll get into it all with Bob Nay. Then at 10.15, we're going to talk to Ann Wallace-Allen of Seven Days about what to do with when you get stiffed by your contractor. Um, that was one of the more... Uh, provocative stories in this week's seven days, which is always a thrill. And then we will close out the show with an Oscars recap. So I'm doing that last to make everybody stick around because all those Oscar winning movies are now on streaming. So you can sit on your couch and just dial it up. And we will go to LA with our special guest and review all the Oscar winners and what it means, uh, what, what the future of streaming means, which I'm a little obsessed with because I'm a, a little sick and tired of uh, bopping around from HBO to Amazon to Netflix. We will always take your calls at 802-244-1777, emails at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Uh, but first... Before we do birds, we're going to do a couple of headlines. So I, I did this quickly last week, but our friend Sky Barsh has been named the new CEO of VT Digger. Um, Sky is a longtime journalist in, uh, in Vermont. Um, she left Vermont to work for The Nation. She's worked for the online news organization Chalkbeat. I had forgotten that she was the associate publisher of Vermont Life Magazine, uh, one of the uh, one of the more interesting governmental decisions was to uh, uh, get rid of Vermont Life, and um, uh, Sky was there when that happened uh, because it was always losing money. But it was one of the more interesting and fun reads in Vermont media. Um, so. As a former board member of, uh, of VT Digger, I'm, I'm thrilled that Sky has been, has been named. Uh, I'm out of it now, but, um, here's, here's hoping that Sky and everybody at Digger, uh, has all the success that they are due. Good work, Sky Barsh. The, uh, and we will have, uh, as always, we'll be having VT Digger uh, reporters on the show. Uh, and uh, to in, to explain the complexities of everything going on at the legislature, speaking of the legislature, today, you don't know it. You all think it's St. Patty's Day, which it is. And, yes, I will go to the, as I said earlier this morning, to the uh, to the Irish music session in Cabot, which I believe is uh, tomorrow. Um, but it's another kind of day today. 
It is something called crossover. So if you're a political junkie and you spend any time at the legislature or reading about the legislature or caring about the legislature, today is crossover day. Here's what that means. It means that if your bill that you care about is in a committee in the House, today is the day that it needs to be approved and out of the committee and onto the House floor uh, in order for it to get across to the Vermont Senate in order to make it make passage into law after being signed by the governor. If it doesn't make it today, uh, it's dead for the year. And you'll have to come back at it in January. There are exceptions, of course. Um, and keep your political junkie hats on because we're going down the rabbit hole here. There are exceptions. Uh, bills having to do with money, taxes, appropriations, those have another week. But if you are uh, trying to, oh, uh, let's see. If you're trying to um, uh, do the child care, well, those are money bills, so they, they have another week. But, uh, oh, I don't know. The average everyday bill has to be out of its committee. And if it's not out of committee today, uh, you're done until January. So uh, there are always little other little sort of secret quasi-exceptions. You know, uh, uh, if it doesn't get out of the House today, uh, a senator can take your language and stick it on the budget or stick it on another piece of legislation and send it over to the House. Uh, that's one way uh, legislators get around crossover. But uh, today's a big day and legislative committees, uh, a piece of advice, do not try to call your legislator today. Send them an email because they, it's going to be very hard for them to answer the phone because they are frantically working to get bills out of committees to, uh, to get it, get them over to the Senate or vice versa from the Senate to, to get them over to the House. So, uh, today, town meeting day. Uh, today's the day when the big, 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 uh, child care and paid family leave bill is going to leave the Senate Health and Welfare Committee, go to the Senate floor and be voted upon. Um, and then it will be sent over to the House. The House is waiting for it. The governor is watching it. It contains a ton of money, millions and millions of dollars to subsidize existing child care centers, to pay child care workers more money to make childcare more affordable and available uh, for people up to, uh, they haven't figured out the final number yet, but up to $150,000 in, in income. It's one thing about, uh, and this will be controversial, they want to make childcare as available as possible, uh, regardless of how much you make. And so... Um, you know, because people who two parent working families are finding it very, very difficult to buy a house, to work at their job, uh, to have a baby, and then to find childcare for that child. Uh, and that is all wrapped up in a very large bill that is making its way over to the house. Is it going to pass? 
I hate to get into the prediction game, but yeah, it's going to pass and it's a lot of money. Um, will the governor veto it? Very good question. Will the affordable heat bill pass? Little unclear. Probably yes, now that it's been watered down in the Senate. It's over to the House and it's really a study of what we should do about climate emissions. Um, will universal school meals pass? That's free breakfast and lunch for every kid at every school in Vermont. Will that pass? Likely yes. It is expensive. The money would come right out of the education bill. No new taxes. Uh, but uh, the, they, the proponents claim that the money is there and available. Will S-100, the omnibus housing bill, pass? Well, it's passed the Senate. Uh, I'm sorry. It's about to pass the Senate, but it is, it is coming to the House uh, with uh, with a delicate compromise uh, around zoning restrictions. The goal of this bill is to enable housing to be built more and faster in downtowns of Vermont. Environmentalists at the Vermont Natural Resources Council and elsewhere are concerned about sprawl, and they are resisting attempts to uh, remove the Act 250 protections uh, so that um, because uh, housing developers say, why should we have to go through uh, a zoning process and have to go through an Act 250 process? That uh, drastically increases the cost of building housing. Uh, but the environmental community is saying, uh, be very, very careful with how you monkey around with Act 250 or else uh, unintended consequences will ensue. Prediction, that bill will pass uh, and it will go over to the House and uh, it will be changed drastically and then there will be a massive uh, conference committee of three senators and three House members that are going to fight it out sometime in late April and May. Uh, uh, about what that housing bill is going to look like. But is it going to pass? Yeah. Would the governor veto that? I doubt it. Um, so as we said on the last show, everybody thinks every, it's, it's kind of cool and fun and sexy to talk about the, the legislature supermajority, uh, the, the, the ability to override Governor Phil Scott's veto. But take it from me, nobody wants to get into a veto fight uh, it makes the legislature and the governor look bad. So will he, will there be uh, bills that he will veto? Sure. Uh, but do, do each side want to get into that kind of back and forth, um, over, over legislation? Not really, uh, because it doesn't really help anybody. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with our bird divas in just a minute. I'm Kevin Ellis. Uh, it's Friday, St. Patrick's Day and crossover day on VT Viewpoint. On WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV Live Radio. Put on your birding hat right now, okay? Everybody slow it down. We're not going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about birds. My bird feeder is under the snow. 
because the snow has fallen off the roof in such amounts that my bird feeder is completely covered. Uh, I have to dig it out. But we're going to get expert advice from our two guests. Bridget Butler, a.k.a. the Bird Diva, embraces slow birding, a mindful practice focused on deep, deep observation beyond identification, connecting with the landscape and connecting with self. And Rebecca Waterman, she's a 10-year birder with an interest sparked by seeing the ruby-crowned kinglet. And uh, they join us here on the phones. Becca and Bridget, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Okay. Hey. Uh, thank you for joining us. So first I want to get to uh, the big question of the day is, what is the Feminist Bird Club? Nice. Yeah, you know, Becca and I have come together to uh, organize a Feminist Bird Club chapter here in Vermont. We're called the Northern Vermont Feminist Bird Club. And the club actually started in New York City um, originally in 2016. And its purpose really was to kind of make birding inclusive and affirming to people. Bex, do you want to share what stands out for you about Feminist Bird Club? What stands out for me is that it sort of helps to change the idea of who makes a birder and what a birder is and can look like and do while out in nature. Well, it's... <laughs> so... I think most people are like me. They're bird feeders under the snow right now. And mm. uh, and so I want to get to some advice. But before we do that, uh, Bridget, how did you get into birding? Yeah, birding did not come to me. <laughs> I, it wasn't something that I, I was into when I was younger. Um, and in fact, through my career as a naturalist, most of the birders that I met were really off-putting. They were a little too competitive for me, a little too um, kind of arrogant and not very welcoming. And I think that's what I like about pulling this new chapter together is it's really about, like um, Beck said, it's really about kind of expanding what we think of as a birder. I didn't get into birding until I came to Vermont. I had worked at a bunch of different nature centers, including Audubon centers across New England, and was just kind of turned off by um, the folks that I had met in the birding community. And when I moved to Vermont, it was it was really different. People were more welcoming. They were really interested in sharing their knowledge and and helping you learn about all of the different birds. Um, and that's that's kind of what shifted things for me. So for me, I didn't really get into it until I was in um, my 30s. And so um, it was it was a it was different than what most what most people that I've I've run into have encountered where they've they've loved birds since their childhood. Um, so a different path. Um, and it just took me a while to find the people that um, made me feel welcome and comfortable. So. Uh, you're right. It's, it's, birding can be, as I've experienced, intimidating because, you know, you've got your Sibley's book or your, uh, uh, Audubon Society book and you're trying to identify, you're sitting at your window and you're trying to identify the bird and it's overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. so I always just end up just putting the book aside and trying to sit there and just, uh, watch the action. Well, that's perfect. That's so, 
an absolutely correct way to be a birder. Um, I, here's a question. What uh, bird feeders, uh, you, you kind of feel like a drug pusher uh, p- p- <laughs> putting feed out for your birds uh, because it's not the natural way of things. They're, they're finding their food elsewhere. But it is so it's, – it's an impossible influence to resist because it creates such a circus of activity in your – in your yard. Uh, so are we, are we, uh, ethically uh, compromised by putting out the bird feeder? I no, don't I don't think so. Think. I think Ooh, it's a go good ahead, thing back. to do. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, I think it's a good thing to do. I think that humans have taken down so much of birds, natural habitat that it's sort of literally the least we can do is to put up some feeders and help them make it through, especially during the winter. Things are harder to keep in, feeds out for the birds, all we're doing is, is helping. I think the worst that can happen is if you have a feeder and you have it established and then you don't keep that up and birds have come to rely on that source of nutrition and then it disappears, I think that can be harmful. But otherwise, I think it's only a good thing. Rebecca, why do we need a feminist uh, bird club here in Vermont? Well... I can answer that by talking a little bit about my own experiences in birding. Um, I started in Oregon about 10 years ago, and on the very first outing I ever went on with other birders, I walked up to the group, and someone looked at me and said, well, you're not exactly part of our group, are you? And I just don't want anybody to ever feel that way. I want to help make it welcoming and inclusive and accessible for everyone. And I think the Feminist Bird Club is doing really great work to do that. Uh, it's it's a great name. Um, and <laughs> how does it work? Do you do you lead Rebecca? Do you lead uh, groups and and tours and outings? How does that work? Um, yes, I spent about six years leading outings for my local Audubon chapter back in Oregon, and here we are about to have our very first outing. It's next. Sunday. Um, we'll be meeting in Burlington, spending about two hours at the waterfront, talking about birds and listening to them and looking at them. Um, folks, you need to register in advance, and this walk is actually full already, which is amazing. We're so excited about that. But we do encourage people to still register for future walks, and we're building a mailing list that way. Okay, and we'll we'll give the coordinates of how to sign up for those uh, towards the end of the show. Bridget, uh, you lead, you facilitate online courses and workshops. Um, tell us more about that. Yeah, so my um, I, I have my own small business. Um, I do outreach and um, workshops, and I just did a, a program last night for folks in Maine on um, the history of uh, women in birding um, to celebrate um, Women's History Month. Um, so a lot of different things. My big focus is really on slow birding, which is this more mindful um, approach to birding that's not outcome-based. Um, and we we sit, right? So you were talking about having your feeders out and not being overwhelmed by trying to identify everything. And that um, is one of the things that I think can be really off-putting to folks as they come into birding as a new person, that feeling of having a lot of pressure of having to know something. Um, 
And slow burning kind of takes that away. It's really about being in the moment with birds, kind of connecting with the land, um, allowing birds to call you into awareness. We know that there's like so many health benefits from this as well. So that's become my my focus right now. I do still have a foot in the conservation world. Um, I team up with the Vermont Center for Eco Studies to offer uh-huh. um, a partnership program for birders and landowners um, to connect so landowners can get to know birds on their property as well. And now I'm working with Rebecca on the Feminist Bird Club. And for me, this really kind of goes back to kind of connecting conservation, environmental justice, um, and inclusion within this community and, and really trying to be intentional about that so that we can create a place that's affirming and welcoming. Like Becca shared um, her own personal story about um, literally like right off the bat, not feeling included. And that's the thread that kind of runs through all of my work. And for me, birds are the hook for that. They're a great conversation starter and they're a great way to draw people in, whether you're talking about conservation um, or social justice. Uh, and you run a consulting business called Bird Diva Consulting. Yeah, you can find me at birddiva.com online. Um, and I'm happy to like reach out and, and kind of um, be cre- do some creative thinking of, around what birding means for you or for your organization and how I can help you make that connection. Well, I, I, there's such a place in the world for this. I guarantee you that uh, uh, my favorite birder, although I might have to change to you guys, that uh, Brian <laughs> Pfeiffer uh, is a longtime uh, bird bird guru and he's a huge dev listener and fan and sometimes he calls into the show but i in speaking of being intimidated like whenever i see brian on the street in montpelier Mm. i'm actually reluctant to talk to him because you know he spends his life in the in the forest and and in the fields looking at birds and explaining birds and the last thing he wants to do is talk to me on the street about what is that phoebe doing at my bird feeder but uh so I'm oh, glad there's more have, players on the field. I have a funny story about Brian, actually, and I think I think you might be wrong about his desire to stop and talk about birds. Um, I work at a bookshop in Montpelier, and Bridget recommended to me to get the Birds of Vermont book, and so I special ordered it. And the day that it arrived to me, I was standing behind the counter looking at it, and a person came in to to pick up some books to do some shopping and of course we got to talking about birds because I will talk to birds about anybody <laughs> who will listen I'll talk <laughs> about birds um and he said I, I showed him the book that I had just gotten he's like oh yeah that's me I'm I'm Brian <laughs> and so we had this great conversation about it and he was more than happy to talk to me about birds and I think people who are birders and enjoy birding are always happy to stop and talk about what that bird is and how how do they identify it? And they couldn't believe what they just saw and how did they figure out what it was? Yeah, and of course, there's the Saturday show for the birds with your favorite agriculture secretary, uh, Anson Tebbets of Cabot, and uh, another guy you see on the street, and you're just always tempted to say, "What is that thing doing at my bird feeder?" Um, <laughs> all I get, Rebecca, are uh, I get the Phoebes and I get the red cardinal and I get the blue jay and of course I get the squirrel. So I haven't yet put the cone on my feeder to keep that squirrel from uh, destroying my 
my entire uh, bird feed. Uh, Becca Waterman, um, you one of the great jewels of the central Vermont area is the North Branch Nature Center. Uh, tell us about your connection to them. Well, when I moved here in September of last year, I was told that it was one of the best places to bird in the area. And so I went and checked it out, and Bridget happened to be leading an outing there. And it was my first experience with slow birding, and I had the best time. Um, Bridget's style of birding can be a little bit different to mine. I'm, you know, I tend to move quickly and identify birds as I go and move on to the next one, and I'm learning to slow down a little bit. And Bridget is definitely helping me with that. Um, and I want to be involved as much as I can with the local birding scene. And so um, Bridget, I think, recommended me to Naomi, who's the executive director there. And I got to talking with her. And then I got to talking with Sean Beckett. And come spring, I'm going to be leading and co-leading some outings for North Bend Nature Center, including a LGBTQIA plus walk, which... I believe it's in May. Um, Bridget, the North Branch Nature Center, uh, I have a little experience just walking on their uh, paths, and mm-hmm. we, we come through the woods down from East Montpelier down the hill and, and sort of emerge out to the gorgeously beautiful uh, grounds and renovated buildings at the Nature Center. It's a fabulous resource. Yeah, it really is. And one of the things that I love so much about it is the fact that it's kind of this intersection between all these different types of habitats, including like a little bit of urban, right? As urban as we can feel in Vermont, really, right? So you've got Montpelier is just like a stone's throw away. But then you have um, the river that runs through the community there. You have field, you have forest, you have like a little bit of upland, right? So it's this incredible mix. And when we have a diversity of habitats like that, we also have a diversity of species of birds. So the things that you have a chance to see there are absolutely incredible, and they shift throughout the year. So the fact that North Branch continues to evolve their trails and make them more accessible and open allows more people to have access to this wider variety of habitats. I think it's just a fabulous place to be able to visit any time of year. Okay, so we're. Uh, I want to get to some specific bird questions that I have. Mm-hmm. We take your calls at 244-1777. Feel free to call in with your bird question. No question is too dumb. Uh, and I will start with the dumbest, although why don't we go to Fred on the line who, uh, Fred, give us your bird question. Well, I will. It's very interesting. Uh, back in the day when I was more ambulatory, my wife and I got addicted to bird watching and we had a life's list of about maybe 12 to 15 birds. And it was just unbelievably fun, fascinating. And it was good exercise. But anyway, Mm -hmm. what happened was I got fascinated by birds. And so I went on the Internet, was looking at birds and this and that. And I discovered a bird that had a call. It was so unique. I recorded the call. And then I'd go into the woods and I'd play that call. And I called it my bird watcher call. And the bird was the... It was called the uh, lyre bird. 
And I took that recording and I'd go into the woods and I'd play the lyrebird and it would draw in bird watches to my hiding tree like you couldn't believe. Have you ever heard <laughs> of the lyrebird call? Okay. Uh, Bridget or Becca, either one of you? Okay, yes, I have heard of the lyrebird. This is, gosh, I think it's like a rainforest bird, if I if I recall correctly. And it, it mimics other um, sounds that it picks up on the landscape. I think that's what he's talking about. Okay. Uh, okay, Quest- thank you for the call, Fred. Great question. Fantastic. Right on topic. Uh, I have a question. It seems to me that I only get the little Phoebe at my feeder. And I know I'm, I'm just dreading the answer here. Uh, you know, you're going to tell me my habitat is, is, is not good enough or, or whatever. But how do you increase the variety of birds in your yard? Uh, let's um, go to, let's say, go to Rebecca. Okay. Uh, I would say first you need to focus on feeding who you have in your yard already. If you know mm-hmm. you've got the CD, feed, feeding the CD what they like. If you see cardinals nearby, you know, find out what kind of seeds they like and put that down. Once you've established being able to feed the birds that you have, then you can focus on bringing in new and different birds. And really that's just a variety of food. Put it in different places in your yard. Ah. Birds are very attracted to the sound of running water. If you're able to put a water fountain, you can even make your own homemade one with a hose and a garbage can lid and a little, little short little trough you dig. You can start to bring in more birds that way. Uh, Bridget? Yeah, all of that. And I'm going to add like the third piece to this. So, so Becca's got food and water. And then I think we can start to think about cover too, right? So, I've discovered that the feeders in my front yard, if I put feeders in my front yard where there aren't a lot of trees or shrubs, I don't get as many birds, but my backyard is more plentiful. I've got hedgerows and I've got brush piles and a variety of different types of trees. So if you want to combine those two passions of birding and gardening, you can start to landscape and garden for the birds and think about the types of trees and shrubs and perennials that'll be great for them that will not only provide them food, but they'll provide them cover. Okay, that brings up a sore subject. So I have 40 blueberry bushes, and those mm. uh, yeah, and those little varmints uh, <laughs> like to steal my blueberries. So I have, I have erected cedar posts around my blueberries, and then I drape bird netting over the posts every year to protect my blueberry crop from those thieves. Um, mm. <laughs> and it's a lot of work and I resent it, but, <clears throat> but, uh, I think we've reached a happy coexistence, but uh, talk about birds and fruit, uh, in the backyard. Yeah. So you've got frugivores, right? Birds that, that <laughs> like fruit. I would encourage you to shift your mindset and oh, start no. thinking about them as your friends and your neighbors and you're having them over to share in your blueberries. So, you know, what, like five shrubs for you and two shrubs for the birds. (laughs) And then you'll start to get to know who the frugivores are. Who are the birds that are able to, you know, chow down on all of those blueberries? And you can build a relationship with them, Kevin, and then it's all good, right? Yes. This is another way that we can attract birds. And so, right, maybe not your blueberries, 
Um, but we can plant other shrubs like dogwoods and viburnums and things like that that maybe aren't the berries that we're going to eat, but that the birds will eat. And then we can sit back and enjoy our bowl of blueberries while they chew down, chow down on other plants. Okay, so you're going to tell me that I have to give up my <laughs> white male privileged dominant anthropomorphic <laughs> yes. place yes. in the society. Exactly. <laughs> you said it. There we go. Back in, I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, it's going to be very difficult, but uh I'll I'll invite you over and we can we can have a bowl of blueberries. Okay. Um how did you come together actually to form the chapter of the Feminist Bird Club? You know, well, it was that walk that, that Bridget was leading yeah. at the Nature Center. Um and at the beginning of that outing, she asked how everybody felt about slow birding, and I was pretty honest, and I said I wasn't sure about it, because it's not, it's not a style that I was accustomed to. And we spent those couple of hours together. It was such a great experience for me, and I felt like that was the start of the community of birders I was trying to find in Vermont, since I'm still pretty new here. And she and I just got to talking, and I, you know, I said I want to be involved as much as possible. And Bridget actually did almost all of the legwork to get this chapter up and going, and I just kind of stepped in with, you know, a little bit of energy to to help to help it actually take off. Uh, yeah, a lot of energy. I needed that. I needed that other person to help me and and to get it off the ground and. You know, she and I connected on that on that outing, um, and and I saw in her kind of the future of birding and where birding's going to go. And for me, wow. I know, but this is so true. Like, right? It's it being more inclusive, um, just a kind of respecting different viewpoints and experiences and ways of being with birds is really important. I mean, that's the way that we're going to bring people into conservation and change and connection with one another, even for social justice issues that the Feminist Bird Club is, um, you know, deeply part of. And so when we connected and she said she had been wanting to start a Feminist Bird Club in Seattle, I was like, I'm trying to start one here. It was just it was like it was meant to be. Um, you are you talk a lot about uh, bringing BIPOC, queer folks, and women into birding. Can you talk, Rebecca, can you talk more about that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I myself identify as a queer woman, and birding has historically been populated mostly by older cis white men. And so I wanted, you know, that, that can be very intimidating for women who maybe don't feel safe birding alone, for queer folks, for people of color, um, and I just want to do what little I can to help change the view of what a birder is and help make other people feel safe and comfortable and welcome. That That is, uh, you know, this is a conversation that we are having across all. I mean, it's fun to talk about this vis-a-vis -vis birding, but it's a conversation mm -hmm. we're having, obviously, across the board on every, it touches everything. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Do, am I getting that close to right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I think this is a practice in and of itself, you know. So thinking about what it feels like not to belong or not to feel welcome and how do we shift that within these 
events that we love to gather at, right? So how can we use welcome and inclusive language? Um, how can we learn how to listen to each other and support one another in learning? You know, this is something that Rebecca and I feel really strongly about is through these events that we're going to hold, we're going to hold four this year, we want to show like a wide range of what it is like, what it looks like, feels like to be a birder and be a, a part of an inclusive birding community. And hopefully this will, you know, trickle out through um, the rest of the community and we'll start seeing, um, I don't know, just a, a, a greater diversity of people showing up to these events and also participating in, in conservation as well. Boy, ain't that the truth. We're going to go to Steve in Websterville. Welcome to the show. Well, good morning. Well, I was wondering about Millstone up here in Websterville and um, uh, with the occasional bear that, that visits my bird feeder. <laughs> um, but I did have a suet out, out up until about a couple of weeks ago, and uh, a fisher cat got a hold of that. So... Um, but we we have got a fisher cat up here uh that that is in the area so uh but uh, my question is is that uh, blue jays and cardinals and, and and lately i've been seeing quite a few of those uh in in in, in their their there're a lot of them lately so is that something now that we're seeing even though the snow uh bridget why don't we go to you uh steve thanks for the call yeah, so Steve, we're right at the cusp of this shift in seasons and and a lot of times, right as we move from winter to spring, we can start to notice some of these behavioral changes that we see in birds where most of the winter time, right, we have mixed flocks like chickadees and nuthatches, titmice and cardinals hanging out. And now we may start to see birds spreading out a little bit more. Blue jays the same thing, they'll kind of posse up during the winter and hang out together. And as we go through the next couple of weeks, they're going to start to disperse a little bit more. I think the other thing that's happened to us just in the past week and a half here in Vermont is all of a sudden winter's here, right? And so food sources are really covered up. So we have birds that are a little bit more intent on finding where those food resources are. So they may be um, kind of scattered across the landscape differently. Keep your eye out because um, you'll also, and your ear, right, because we're hearing vocal shifts as well. So I think it's mm-hmm. pretty cool that you're already noticing that that change in how birds are gathering together around where you live. Steve, thanks for the call. Uh, okay. I like the cardinal and I like the blue jay in my backyard. Is that correct? Rebecca? Probably, yeah. Yeah. Probably. What about black cap chickadees? Uh, yes, they are there as well. Uh, but my mm-hmm. goal, but my goal this year, of course, is variety and diversity. So why don't mm. why don't we focus on that? How can I encourage uh, diversity? I think one of the best things that you can do to start off with that I think is really surprising is really just go and spend time outside on a regular basis. Yeah, that's right. 20 minutes a day. I think you will be surprised at what you see um, and how it shifts over the next couple of months. You know, my family and I, we keep a backyard big year list. 
So the rule is that you can put anything on the list that you see or hear in your yard. And I'm in, I'm in St. Albans city. I'm on the edge of the city. Um, but I am in a urban ish area. I don't have incredible forest right out the back door, but we have, we have logged over 80 different species of birds moving through here. They don't all stay, but they do come through. So I think the first thing to do is just slow down, spend time, and look. And I think you'll be surprised at how many species there actually are. And and Rebecca, do you sit there with your uh, Sibley's book or or your uh, uh, Roger Tory Peterson book and and try to identify, <laughs> or do you just sit there and uh, enjoy what you have? I do like to identify who I'm seeing, hearing. Um, I think the thing that's most important is to spend as much time as you can first looking at the bird and noticing, you know, general shape. How does it compare in size to birds that you're definitely familiar with, like a blue jay or a crow? Start to notice what kind of feather patterns you see. Is it barred? Is it spotted? And once you've spent a lot of time observing what you can about how the bird looks, and sounds, that's the time to look into your field guides. But spend as much time as you can before that with your with your eyes and ears on the bird. Uh, so that's a good message to me, which is don't be intimidated by the fact that you don't know what you're looking at. Just enjoy mm-hmm. what you're what you're sitting in the midst of. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, we're going to go to another call. Cindy from Faston, you are on the line. Uh, give us your favorite bird question. Or, or comment to make. Um, I've heard that people haven't seen many uh, yellow grosbeaks or evening grosbeaks, and I have a herd of them. <laughs> like I counted fifty. I stopped at fifty, and they're all going for the uh, black oil sunflower sunflower seeds on my railing, and they come down usually in the morning, and just like swoop down and take over the whole area. And eat those sunflower seeds. So I'm wondering if it, I've talked to different people and they say they haven't seen any. So I think they're all up here. I don't know. <laughs> Becca? I actually cut out a little bit. I missed the first part of what you said. Can you say again what kind of bird it is that oh, you're seeing? Oh, she dropped off the line. That's oh. okay. That's okay. Bridget, maybe you can help. I, I heard the first part of that call. Yeah, I can help. Sure. Um, evening Grosbeak, Becca, that's what she was seeing. Um, and, yeah, this is an Evening Grosbeak year for sure. Um, they've pushed down from the northern regions. We don't have them as, as much in Vermont. Um, this bird is in decline, so we don't get to have an experience with them as much. But this year, for some reason, the seed and cone crops aren't as great up north. And so the birds have pushed a little bit further south. I had flocks of them um, in my neighborhood in the fall, and then they kind of um, they kind of pushed out. So they must all be at Cindy's house right now. So if you want to look for evening grosbeaks, um, look where there are conifer trees. And then in my neighborhood, they were actually eating um, the ash um, seeds, ash tree seeds. And so you can look for them in those trees as well. Yeah, the the uh, cedar hedge in my backyard is is a massive, uh, as I said earlier, circus of 
of mm. activity because it, I've got a feeder there, but it also is great cover. Uh, they all hide in there and just, just, it's just one big slumber party. So, um, cover is everything we have to go. Uh, so, but, but Bridget Butler and Rebecca Waterman, I'm so grateful to you for joining us. Uh, tell us again where listeners can join you, find out about you, uh, online. Bridget Butler, why don't we start with you? The bird, the bird diva. Yeah, I'll give the, the Gmail address. So right now we exist in two places and one of them where you can reach out to us is through our email address. It's Northern Vermont, all spelled out, and then FBC, those letters for Feminist Bird Club, because we are the Northern Vermont Feminist Bird Club, at gmail.com. So you can reach out to us through there. We're building a mailing list so that we can stay in regular contact with folks who want to be able to join us on outings. Bex, you want to throw the, the Instagram Handle. Yeah, so we're also on Instagram. We don't have a regular website yet, but you can find us on Instagram at FBC. Again, those letters are for Feminist Bird Club. So FBC.NVT for Northern Vermont. FBC in the house. Bridget Butler and Rebecca Waterman, the Bird Divas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Birding, it's for everybody. Kevin Ellis, VT Viewpoint, WDEV, will be back in a minute. Okay, we are back. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, where we talk everything, politics, birding. Uh, but for now, we're going to go right to Washington, D.C. for our, uh, our weekly chat with Bob Nay. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Kevin. Okay, I'm going to make an assumption that you are similar to me in that when it comes to Silicon Valley Bank and what's going on, uh, I'm way, way over my head. So the last thing I'm going to do is try to be an expert on what's going on. Uh, you as a former congressman are way better than me at this. Let's try to summarize for our listeners, um, you know, uh, where we are in this banking situation, I see that the Fed is very much involved. I see that Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan is now raising a bunch of money from fellow bankers to backstop other banks. Uh, where do you think we are at the moment? Well, there was um, obviously a, a huge hemorrhage beginning uh, because of the fact that Silicon Valley was – uh, basically in trouble, obviously. Now, a lot of people, uh, I do want to point out, Kevin, uh, think that the Silicon Valley Bank has been something new. It's been there for 40 years. Yeah. So I did, I did want to stress that. Um, and what ended up happening to it, well, several things happened, but in a, in a nutshell, uh, Part of the problem is that they had a lot of their money backed up and they had uh, bonds. And then when the interest rates raised, then they had a uh, portfolio that was vulnerable to interest rates rising. That's that's the nutshell of it. Their portfolio was very vulnerable and they put half of their money, which was about ninety one billion in that investment portfolio. And that's where, you know, the interest rates rise. 
the bonds go another direction for it. So what it did is it started to sell off, basically get rid of some assets. When that happened, people paying attention said, oh, wow, how about my money? What's going to go on? And then a run basically started on that bank. Now, President uh, Biden came in very quickly, Janet Yellen from the Treasury, and uh, we have basically, I'm going to, I'm going to term it. We've given them a low interest loan. Right. Is what the government's done. We only backed two hundred fifty thousand. Now that bank became an investment hub with deposits from a lot of tech companies. So it became a bank that, if you and I had a tech company, we would say, "Oh, that's a bank that's kind of sympathetic to how we operate." So people put their money in it. It's not like a Vermont bank in particular where you have a lot of different depositors. This had some depositors that would have to routinely take out quite a large amount of money. Startups, for example. So that's what happened. And there was a a run. Of course, it affected also uh, London. It affected Europe uh, because of you know some of the investment there. Europe's basically taking care of it pretty fast including the Swiss bank. It's it's this is a case um of again I'm way over my head on this. So but this is a case where you've got to read the the media very carefully because oh, most gosh. of the mainstream media is going to be sort of breathlessly following this as if it's some sort of uh, football game on Sunday afternoon and that's really not the way to do this. Find uh your favorite finance writer uh, go watch, oh, I don't know, Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times, mm-hmm. uh, who's good on this, but don't follow the, the, the I don't know, the, the sort of just the headlines because you'll, you'll panic and you'll take all your money out of your bank. Uh, really dig deep into this because, uh, the FDIC is there, the government is there, and it looks like this system is going to stabilize. But again, this is not my expertise. Well, I was on, the, and I'm not an expert, but I was on the uh, U.S. House Banking Committee called Financial Institutions for 11 years. And when the 2007 housing uh, fall came, I had been chairman of the subcommittee on housing. And a lot of people looked and said, well, you all helped a lot of poor people get into housing. That's what caused this. Well, that that was a stereotype broad brush. And there was a lot of things that led to 2007, including a surplus on the market. And you are exactly right, because I had people that called me in Ohio yesterday saying, should I take my money out of certain banks in Ohio? Yeah. And I said, absolutely not. Uh, let look at this, and and also there was a Dodd Frank bill. So the SVB Bank, the Silicon Valley Bank, um, had some regulations that were loosened, and the government will look back at that to try to catch this earlier. But again, you you said the right thing. Uh, this is not something that's pervasive all over the banking community in the country. Okay, let's go abroad where. Uh the president of China is meeting with the so-called president of Russia, uh, trying to uh, position himself as a peacemaker uh, in this uh, Ukrainian war. What do you make of that? Well, this is going to be fascinating to watch. In fact, if he's not successful, you know, President Xi, then at least if he makes the attempt, it puts him in the um, 
the view of the world as a, a powerful leader. Since you and I talked last week, a, a shocking moment came when Saudi Arabia and Iran, which I lived in both countries, I lived in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and Shiraz, Iran, years back. Those two countries, which I thought was impossible for them to ever come together because of the hatred uh, for each other, came together, and that was because of China. China just established itself as a player in the Mideast. Now, the United States says, well, they really don't know Mideast policy. Well, they knew it well enough to get two enemies together. And so now it's interesting. The Chinese government, and President Xi in particular, they really, Kevin, I don't think do anything by, oh, accident, or let's just run over to Russia. Right. There's something there. Yeah. Yes. Something is is being planned, at least to throw out probably, and then China will look like uh, you know the the peacemaker, which is fine. Uh, you know anybody that can can make uh, peace over there, but it does show China is not only ex- China starting to do business in Honduras, but also in Puerto Rico, one of our territories, and now it's becoming sort of a diplomatic giant in uh, some tough cases. Bob, put your put your congressman hat on again, and and there seems to be, I, if I had to stereo, if I had to generalize, there's a sense that the United States uh, is losing its dominant grip on the world economically and diplomatically and politically, and that we are quite afraid of this role that China's beginning to play. Well, we are because uh, the fact that our statement, and that's a really good observation because our statement this week was, well, you know, China doesn't really know what it's doing in the Mideast. Well, <laughs> neither did we in particular. Yeah, right. You know, we just had a vote yesterday in the Senate, and I voted for full force and authority, the worst vote I ever cast in my lifetime. And I voted for that. Uh, we were looking for weapons of mass destruction. We were lied to, or or our intelligence was so idiotic that it was, you know, irrational. I, I'm going to say we were lied to. And um, this we is the to, sorry to interrupt. This is the vote that allowed us to gate that gave the president to go to war in Iraq. Yes, this and, is the vote that and, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden voted yes, for when they were in the Senate. Yes, yeah. and I did too. And and I'm still not allowed to tell you today what I saw. I wish I could, because I think if people would have sat with me at that time, they probably would have made the same vote. But unfortunately, after that fiasco ended, nobody ever went back and brought those people that stood before us and said all these things. Nobody ever held them accountable. Yes, that that's the vote that allowed for us to go to the Mideast. And so... We've had, you know, sort of a, a track record of, of mishaps in a sense. And um, then we uh, practically were almost booted out of Iraq at one point in time. You know, we uh, went after Iran when, uh, in fact, Iran and Russia were in Syria, which was the only thing that kept ISIS back. And we were starting to deal with the bad guys at the time. So some of our judgment, I guess you could say, is has been flawed over the years. But now our answer, again, is, well, you know, we're sort of still the experts, and I think we have waned a lot. Saudi Arabia, what it did to President Biden, you know, the fist bump and then went completely 
opposite of what uh, they told President Biden, you know, they would do. So I I, I think around the world we uh, have lost some ability, and also we've picked certain positions where we go after people to the extent um, that you know we get embroiled in in uh, not dealing with other countries because, for example, they deal with Cuba, so we won't deal with you. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've done a little bit of that over the years, which is not working out good. No. No, you're right. And, uh, it's, it's, we've, we've made a lot of bad choices, but, uh, we gotta live with them and we'll see how, if we work our way out. Bob Nay, it's always too short a time, uh, but thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bob Nay with Everything Washington. Uh, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back with Ann Wallace-Allen at Seven Days. We're talking about shady contractors. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis on WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's VT Viewpoint on WDEV. And our guest is Ann Wallace-Allen of Seven Days. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Okay. We're talking about shady contractors and what happens when you uh, put some money down on a project and your contractor skips out on the job and what is your recourse. Uh, Got to say, great story. And you left the good stuff to the end, which kept me reading all the way to the end. But let's start at the beginning. Tell us about the story. Yeah, well, this year, um, or I should say for many years, the, uh, there have been efforts underway to create some kind of contractor registration system. And last year, advocates of doing that actually managed to do it. And so on April 1st, um, that's the deadline for contractors to register with the Secretary of State's office and prove that they have homeowners insurance. And one of the reasons for the advocates pushing for this is that they said that it would make, you know, there'd be more of a system of accountability for contractors. There were other reasons too. So I looked into, you know, who was registering and why and how. And um, I realized that, you know, even with registration in place, there's still, for a lot of people who lose money to a contractor, they're just, there's really nothing they can do except say goodbye to that money. Right. And you you have really good examples of a, of a couple that's uh, Charlie and Jen Lawrence in the basement of their South Burlington home sunk, sunk some money into it, into their project, and the contractor never showed. Yeah, and you know, the, Jen Lawrence, who, who they, the family moved to South Burlington from Houston um, a couple of years ago, and she she did her due diligence. You know, she her realtor recommended this contractor and she also talked to some other people who had work done by him. And um, so she gave him a deposit for some materials and showed him the work that she wanted done. But the contractor was, you know, going through some tough times and ended up in rehab and never finished the work. And so she's, she's been looking into her options and she contacted the police in South Burlington and they referred her to their uh, community justice center, which is lodged at the police department. And, um, She's helping now. She's helping them come up with a list of tips to avoid being scammed or defrauded by a contractor. But the, the process really shows there's not much you can do. I mean, their tips include things like Google the contractor or look for his reviews on Yelp, um, his or her reviews and stuff like that. So it's kind of a, you know, a lot of people are referred by the police to small claims court, which will take claims of up to $5,000, but the judge in the small claims court doesn't have any means of ordering restitution either. So there's just, 
Um, there is, there is, you know, it, it, there is law, recently passed law that makes you can you can pursue a criminal conviction, and on occasion the police do do that, and people do get restitution. And you can also contact the state attorney general's office, but all they can do is kind of write a letter to the contractor and try to help mediate some sort of settlement. So if none of those things work, you're just out of your money. Right. Uh, and it's, so if you are, it did, it did strike me though that why would you give a contractor a bunch of money down without having to pay for the work? And I guess the, yet without him doing the work. And I guess the answer is because he needs the money to buy materials. Right. And you know, the other person I interviewed who had, um, had the bad experience with the same contractor and who met the first person because they both put in bad reviews on Yelp. She, you know, she questioned why don't, you know, he asked for money for materials and she, she said, well, why don't I just pay the, the building supplies place directly? And he said, well, I get a contractor's discount. And she sort of explained why she lost, you know, $12,000 doing this. And, um, but yeah, I, I hope that people reading this story think twice before they hand over a lot of money to someone they don't know very well. Um, because it seems that even with, good recommendations. You know, people's lives can take a turn and they can't complete the work and they can't pay the money back and then the homeowner is out the money. And I, I, you, you name that this contractor, Pete Henning, in the middle of your story and then you, you know, you, you call him up and interview him and tell him, tell us about that interview. Well, I didn't, I, I talked to his mother on the phone, but Pete, I just, texted and he sent me an email sort of explaining what had happened, which was that he had ended up in a long eight-week rehab and had spent the money and was committed to paying it back. And he's out of state. Um, so, you know, he was very apologetic, but uh, the people who lost money to him are not in the least bit appeased that they say he was awfully apologetic to them too while he was telling them he was going to be there the next day and the next day and the next day and you know, never finished the work, but it was, um, you know, part of, kudos to Pete Henning for, uh, writing to me and telling and owning up to what, to what he did, which is that he took these people's money and he, he says he's going to work to earn it and return it. Although it's a lot of money. Uh, some of the people who met on Yelp, uh, didn't get back to me, but one of the, but you know, they all got together and like some of them lost, $30,000. So there's, it's, it would take him a while to repay them if indeed he decides to do that. I hate to be uh, on, on Team Seven Days, but I got to tell you, I this story had it all for me. I mean, it, this guy Henning goes to rehab. Obviously, the money's gone. He pledges to spend. I mean, there's, there's another side to it, which is this guy's life came apart. Uh, people were hurt. His customers were hurt in the process. But I couldn't help but feel bad for him on some level because this happens to all of us that, you know, some unforeseen things take over your life and, and it goes upside down and, and boy, it's all in there in your story in seven days this week. Um, what, what? Well, oh, never, never hesitate to be on team seven days. That's fine. <laughs> um, thank you for your kind words about the story. I have to give credit to Pete and his mother for talking to me on the phone about yeah. what was going on. Um, it, uh, but I know that the people who lost money would 
are furious and did not feel that way. Yeah, Miss Baird, the the last quote in the story, suddenly we're supposed to forgive everything? What did he do with all that money? Well, we it, all that money went to rehab or it went to drugs and alcohol or Lord knows what, but uh boy, it's uh this story has it all. What so okay, so if you are feeling stiffed by your contractor, what's the checklist? Of things that people well, can do. Call the police, file a report. Um, if they have a, um, you know, a victims advocate program or community justice center, the the one in South Burlington, I talked to the guy who runs it. It's, they're very helpful. I mean, they're very sympathetic to what has happened, and also to the offender. And you know, they have all kinds of ways of trying to make good. Um, and then contact the attorney general's office. Um, as I said, they can't do much, but, um, you know, to be fair, they told me they recently did get $20,000 back for, for somebody who had filed a home improvement complaint with their office. And they also have a list of people who've been criminally convicted of home improvement fraud at the AG's office. So you definitely look at that list uh, before you hire your contractor. Right. Um, and maybe don't pick any of those people. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so, and so, and guess what? The phones are lighting up and we don't usually do this, but I'm going to let the, 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 the public have at you here. Um, Mac from Hyde Park, you're on the phone with Ann Wallace Allen. Hey, how are you? Good. What's the, Hi, what's um, the question? Uh, well, it's just, it's just kind of a statement. Um, I've worked in the construction business for like 45 years. And there's another, there's a whole other side to this story. And I wouldn't want your listeners to think that this was just one-sided. Um, you know, you should never tractor a big sum of money until they're on the job working. But what happens to us a lot of times is that we don't get paid. And so... Having worked as long as I have in the industry, um, the the preponderance of of problems is actually faced by the contractors not getting paid, <laughs> and so this is a problem. But there's a whole legal mechanism uh, to, to for for homeowners to pursue to get their money back. So. I just wanted I just wanted to make everyone aware of that. I suspect that'll be Anne's follow up story. Thanks for the call. Uh, Can I say yeah, something? Yeah, Anne, please go ahead. Um, I was married to a building contractor for 22 years, and that is so true. There are homeowners who don't pay, or they pay less than what was agreed, um, even though all of the work was done and done satisfactorily. So, excellent point. And I think the other thing is that it's kind of our the the problems with addiction in our state and in many, many other states are so frightening and so horrific right now that, um, you know, you've got, I think, Kevin, is why you said that there's some sympathy with this guy. It's, it's terrible for the people who lost their money. But when someone's life goes off the rails, like it used to be like, oh, not, you know, it was terrible. But now it's like it's kind of, it's scary what is happening to people. Right. Um, so I think that does add a little sympathy to the situation. Uh, it's, uh, I, I was at an event the other day, actually, Ann Wallace Allen was there doing her job and, uh, with Congresswoman Becca Ballant in which as somebody tossed out the statistic that Vermont has the worst housing stock in the country. 
Now, I, I don't know. Oldest. Oldest. Yeah, oldest. I, I'm not exactly sure about the details there, but, you know, there's a huge market for contractors. There's a huge market for people fixing and weatherizing their homes. And this is an issue that you're <laughs> probably just beginning to scrape the surface of. Yeah, there's a lot to be written about housing, and it is true that a lot of our housing is it's standing, but it's not in the greatest shape. So, um, and meanwhile, you know, it's hard for contractors to live here because it's hard for them to find housing that they can afford without having to drive miles and miles and miles to get to their job. So it's kind of a multi-pronged situation that does. Yeah, one of the one of the luxuries of living in Central Vermont is that. You know your contractor really, really well, and he or she is, you know, in your house, on your property, coming to your house for a potluck. So these these issues don't spring up as much, I think, in smaller communities where you're hiring your neighbor. But, uh, boy, it's a big problem. Uh, Ann Wallace-Allen, as always, thanks a million. What a great story. Thanks, Kevin. Say hi to say hi to everybody. It's seven days. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, Ann Wallace Allen, seven days, seven days vt dot com. Uh, I like to read the paper. I got to tell you, but great website. Um, it's all there, and uh, give them your uh, give them your your patronage because we need local media. We're going to be back. Uh, we're doing a Oscars recap with our LA correspondent, Keenan Ellis. Uh, we're going to do all things Oscars, everything, everything bright and beautiful, great and small. I watched it last night and boy, do I have questions. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's VT Viewpoint on WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Okay, we're back. VT Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host, and uh, you're listening to WDEV, and we are here to do our Oscars recap for the next half an hour, and our guest, straight from L.A. himself, Keenan Ellis, is on the line. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Back. Did you like the way I uh, described the Oscar-winning movie? Well, you got the title wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I think you were going, you got it confused with All Creatures Great and Small. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Which, to be fair, too long a title. Okay. Uh, and to be fair, uh, I I made a great effort to watch this movie. Well done. I, I appreciate it. I went to the local uh, art house movie theater in Montpelier, my favorite place in the world, the Savoy Theater. It it's on the marquee, and yet they weren't showing it. It's it's showing uh, tomorrow. Tragedy. So, uh, but so uh, I I walked in the freezing cold to the Savoy, looking forward to popcorn with Cabot butter, uh, and brewer's yeast, and a couple of chocolates. I had to I was turned away at the door, but 
uh, with a little help from technology friends, uh, I can't remember now the streaming. Oh, I had to sign up for Showtime, and I did the seven-day free trial, and I watched the movie. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Best picture, best actor, best supporting actor, best uh, and best actor. Supporting actress and... Yeah. So take us it, through it. Take us through it. What is the movie about? Lord knows I have no idea. It's something about <laughs> a daughter and her mother. Uh, yeah, and I think that is the most important thing to remember is that it's, despite all of its absurdities, uh, it's just a story about a mother learning to... Uh, appreciate and love her daughter in a different way. Um, and as long as you can hold on to that thread, all the other insanity kind of falls into place, I think. Um, but the ba- the basic idea of everything ever all at once is that um, there is, it deals with the multiverse, which is an idea that there are, infinite universes out there with in, infinite versions of ourselves. And, uh, and this movie is about the, um, least successful version of, <laughs> of our main character right. and, and her learning to accept her daughter. And it's got Kung Fu and it's got, uh, uh, she travels to different universes where she exists as, uh, as a chef, as a rock, as a pinata, as an animated character, um, as a film star, and she's able to take the, the abilities of her other selves and in, into her own world. But in the end, it's really just about her and her daughter. And I think that's what people have been responding to so much is the underneath all of the chaos is this very simple, beautiful story. And, um, that is quite moving, actually. I so, but that's that was what I, what I took away from it. What did you take away? From it? Uh, well, I felt I was a little bit in the uh, Matrix movie mm-hmm. uh, with the guy and the headphones and the, the needing exits and needing new platforms and turned me into a kung fu uh, fighter, uh, and yeah. that, that started hooking me. Um, and what hooked me also was the family. Uh, an Asian American family running a laundry and living upstairs in a tiny cramped apartment. I found that to be culturally grabbing for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and are they going to keep living this life? It, 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 which is, st- uh, oh, and they're, they're being audited by the, the, the IRS. Um, and Jamie Lee Curtis is the, it's the auditor. Uh, which so many Americans can identify with that sort of hidden power of the IRS, which can ruin your life overnight. Uh, but there's the stability and certainty of running a laundry and living in the upstairs apartment. And then there's the instability of your daughter coming home with her, with her gay uh, girlfriend. And suddenly your, your, your cultural touch, touchstones are up in the air and you're facing new challenges, uh, both yourself and as a family. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's all exactly right. And um, I think a lot of the people that are confused by this movie, and there is a fair amount of them, so don't feel bad if it confuses you, um, kind of lose sight of those 
touchstones, those emotional touchstones as they go through, um, because there is so much absurdity in the movie. There's uh, a kung fu scene with uh, two guys with uh, different objects shoved up their butts, for instance, which I know is uh, probably not the most grabbing scene in the world for you. Uh, But uh, if you, yeah, if you hold on to everything you just said, I think the movie is quite affecting. Okay. Um, You got to admit that was pretty good for, for me to summarize it like that. I'm really impressed. I'm really impressed. I, I thought you would walk away from that movie uh, (laughs) being like, what did you make me watch? Like that was, that's two hours. I'll never get back. Um, Because, that that is the way a lot of the older members of the academy are reacting to this movie. They're confused. They don't understand, um, and it's the academy's efforts to get younger uh, in recent years that is really uh, pulling has pulled this movie across the finish line. Okay, so let's go to Michelle Yeoh. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, wins for best actress. Tell us about her. Uh, Michelle Yao uh, is a um, Chinese um, martial artist. She's a former dancer, but she's been acting for 40 years in um, Jackie Chan movies and a lot of other Chinese movies. I think her most famous movie in the West is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh, yeah. Um, which is I, is an all-time classic, and she brings a certain... Uh, grace and uh, uh, power to every character she has. She's one of the most popular movie stars in the world, um, but uh, because she, she's Chinese, it's she's less well-known here. Um, but as this campaign has gone on, more and more people have said, has said, it's her time. It's her time. we got to appreciate this international star. And she's great in the movie. She's really funny and moving. Um, and despite being, I think, in her mid-60s, uh, is incredibly physical. She does a lot of fight scenes, yeah. a lot of action. She does some of her own stunts. And it, you have no trouble believing that this uh, 65-year-old woman is beating up these 22-year-old stuntmen. Okay, so now, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, who I grew up watching in the famous Halloween series and mm-hmm. that ridiculous Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Um, it's True Lies, right? True Lies. Uh, so I yeah. grew up with Jamie Curtis, and to see her go on stage and accept an Oscar, well, that was really quite something. A lot of tears, a lot of, a lot of stuff coming out at Jamie Lee Curtis on that stage. Yeah. Now let me ask you a question. Now that you've seen the movie, do you think that role is Oscar worthy? No, I don't. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I, I feel the same. She plays the IRS agent, and yeah. it's a very small role. It's a funny role, uh, but it's it's not what I call uh, uh, <laughs> complex in any way. No. Uh, I. But that this is another. Uh, example of the it's her time narrative yeah where um jimmy lee curtis is uh has been around forever she's a cultural touchstone for us um she's the main character in halloween 
which is one of the more important horror movies of the past, uh, I guess now it's 50 years. <laughs> we use the word important loosely, but yes, I take your point. <laughs> important to some people. Um, and uh, and her dad is Tony Curtis, um, and her mom is, I, I'm really blanking on a very famous actress's name. I apologize, it's quite early here on the West Coast, but she is, a Hollywood baby. She is Hollywood royalty. Tony Curtis, her father, you'll remember, uh, is one of the two leads in Some Like It Hot with Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe. Right. And so a lot of people think she's won this as kind of as, as a tribute to old Hollywood and, um, and, and almost her, her heritage as, part of being Hollywood royalty. Well, which is which is interesting because there are a lot of other deserving actors in it, the best actress category, best supporting actress category. It's so um, fun when the next generation of cool people like you uh don't know who Jamie Lee Curtis's mother is. Her mother is was the late Janet Lee who starred Janet in Lee. Hitchcock's Psycho. Psycho. Yeah, she died <laughs> she's in Psycho, the shower scene. Yeah, the shower scene. It's 7.30 in the morning here. I haven't had my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Ki Wei Kwan, everything, everywhere, all at once. You knew him as in a previous life if, you, if you're if you an Indiana Jones fan. Tell us about him. I, well, I mean, Ki Wei Kwan, he's been winning every award for the past five months um, for this role. Um, he was also in the Goonies as Data. Um which I was just reminded of the other day, and what a what a great movie! Um, yeah, Kihi Kwan. It's re- it's a really amazing story. Uh, he got these two iconic roles very very young, um, and then uh, couldn't find a lot of roles for the next uh, twenty thirty years because uh, Hollywood wasn't casting Asian actors. And so he worked in the film industry as an assistant director and a director of photography, I think. Um, and uh, was this strange kind of albatross going through Hollywood as, you know, this iconic actor who's now working behind the scenes. Um, and he, t- he tells the story much better than I do, but he saw uh, the movie Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, which came out a couple years ago, which inspired him to get back into acting. And this was his first role back. Mm. And he won the Oscar for it, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. We got to move on from that and go to uh, what's, what was your favorite surprise film that in this grouping of the whale, all quiet on the Western front avatar. And of course, the great Tom Cruise, Top Gun Maverick. Um, were there any surprises for you in seeing these films? Um, you know, I, you know, I, I honestly, I just wa- rewatched Top Gun Maverick. Um, <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> it was, it, it was on. And, uh, I gotta say that movie, uh, there's not a frame put wrong in that movie. I am constantly surprised at how Tom Cruise has almost perfected the blockbuster film. Um, if you watch his Mission Impossible 
uh, movies as well. They're of a similar quality. And um, I'm, it's amazing that uh, Top Gun 2, which is a sequel to Top Gun 1, which Top Gun 1 is barely a movie. It's more of a <laughs> uh, car commercial for the Navy. Oh, you're such an elitist. <laughs> Come on. It's, like, it is it is a recruiting is a recruitment is it a yeah I'm sorry it is a recruitment video and to, it is uh, and to uh, make a m- movie a sequel that is not only entertaining but emotionally gripping I you, did you buy several times throughout the movie did you did you buy the relationship between Cruz and Jennifer Connelly I did not you know. I, and this is going to show a little bias, but I, Jennifer Connelly is the most beautiful woman to ever have lived, and I buy her relationship with anybody. Yeah, you know, she, it's true. She could have she could have chemistry with a bar of soap. You know, I, she is truly an amazing actress, and. Uh, has never looked better. I, she's incredible in that movie. Well, and but when, uh, but the it's, she's the owner of the bar, and she's driving a Porsche. Come on. It's Top Gun. It's Top you know? Gun. It's Top Gun. Like they don't, they don't mention who the enemy is, who they're fighting. They right. blow up airplanes of countries that they don't mention because yeah. it's easier just to say, "Well, it's the enemy." Because you don't want to complicate things. You just want to cheer for Tom Cruise flying through the air. Okay, and now they, and they do it. Okay, best adapted screenplay. I've got to ask you because I did not see it. Women talking, made by Sarah Polly. To, to, yeah. and speaking of speaking of trying to get to the opposite of Top Gun. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Women Talking is based on a, a book, um, and it's about a uh, a Mennonite community that has been dealing with a rush of uh, sexual assault by the men onto the women, and the movie is about the women getting together in a barn and having a conversation about what to do about it. Um, and uh, it's honestly fantastic. And it really uh, lives up to its title. It is, and it is a full movie of all the women just talking about what they want to do. And it has some of the most powerful performances of the year. Um, from Claire Foy and Francis McDormand and um, um, Ben Wishaw, who um, is, if for those of you who love the Paddington series, he's the voice of Paddington Bear. Um, and it's an incredibly affecting movie, and it's I, I think it really works. I struggled with, honestly, it's with the color palette. It's a very gray-looking movie. Right. Um, but it's really well-written and stunningly acted. Okay, my surprise... Uh, best animated short. If you want to feel good about the world, uh, if you need a, uh, an uplift, the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. Oh yeah, tell me about. It. I I have not seen this one. Oh my god! I mean, if you enjoy Beatrix Potter and and uh, and uh, you know what's his name, the bear, uh, and Eeyore, and come on, help me oh, out Winnie, here. Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh. If you enjoy <laughs> the animated Pooh Bears. You are going to love this thing. It's about a horse, the mole, and the fox, and a boy. And they 
They are walking around the landscape through the forest, uttering utterly profound little things to each other. And it's just wonderful. So I recommend it. Where can people watch it? What's that? Where can people watch it? Okay, well, that gets us to our last discussion point. Uh, nobody's going to the movie theater anymore, whether it's COVID or, you know, uh, uh, dirty hands or bad popcorn or, or a 50, it's a, now a $50 night. I tried, you know, uh, I tried to watch these movies and there's now so many streaming services that mm-hmm. you don't know how to find these things. So I Google it. How do I find this or how do I find that? Um, where is all this going? Netflix, Paramount Plus, Showtime, HBO Max, Amazon. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that there's a coming consolidation and we're going to go back to the old days where we're just going to gather in front of our TVs on Sunday night like we did to watch Bonanza and Gunsmoke. Uh, and there'll be one streaming service. What's going on out there? Uh, well, um, the long answer is that streaming services are running out of eyeballs. Right. Um, so when streaming first came into vogue, uh, they saw it. Everyone saw it as a growth industry, and so they and so they made a lot of content and thought they would make it all up on the back end. The problem is is that they make all their money through uh, subscriptions. So there is a ceiling to the amount of money they can make, um, and and the bill has come due, basically. Right. And uh, they are no no longer growing, and so a lot of these streaming services are paring down their production. HBO just famously canceled a movie called Batgirl, of a superhero movie. That was finished. They'd finished the movie, um, and it was ready to go up on HBO Max. But uh, it was at, it was actually more financially uh, um, lucrative to not release the movie and write it off on your tax on their taxes. Um, and so, because they all of these services have hit their um, their they're they're ceiling. Um, they've got nowhere to go, and so Netflix is paring down its production. If you go on Netflix, you'll notice that there's a lot more reality TV shows than um, than prestige dramas out there because they're much cheaper to produce. I'm getting angry about this. Um, so, where can people find these Oscar-winning movies if they're not going to the theater? They're, they're, they go to the theater. And I always suggest go to the theater first. I love yep. going to the movie theater, but it's expensive and it's hard to get there. Yeah. Um. I. I. Well, like what you said. I mean, the answer is you have to look for them. You, yeah. They are going to the streaming services. They are there, but there are so many different streaming services. And yes, I think down the line these streaming services are going to consolidate. Uh, Showtime is getting absorbed by Paramount. Just uh, for instance, Hulu got absorbed by Disney, and um. So they're all, I I do think we are going back to a cable TV box where instead of channels, we just have streaming services. Yep. Um, But that, it has not happened yet. 
And okay. so unfortunately, you do have to do the legwork. You do have to Google, where can I watch women talking? And then Google will tell you. Okay. But first, try to go to the Savoy in Montpelier or the Absolutely. or the uh, Arclight in Hollywood. Keenan Ellis, that's our Oscar recap for the week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, uh, we're, uh, go watch The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse. Fantastic. It really caught me. Uh, that's our show. Uh, we got to run because we had so much to do today. Uh, I'm Kevin Ellis. You can find me at KevinKLS.com. Subscribe to whatever. Find me on Twitter. Uh, and we're going to be back on Wednesday of next week with another long list of substantive guests where we seek insight and exploration. And uh, we'll be knowing a lot about what's going on at the legislature. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's VT Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll see you next week.